This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. The Rambam says that the uh, only way to fulfill the first commandment of the top ten commandments is via knowledge and not belief. The first commandment is to know there is a God. And that's a very tall order for God to command us to know there is a God. It's questionably even possible. Like to know, can you even know? Like that's a whole discussion in itself. Uh, can you can you absolutely know? I mean, science has been trying with all their, you know, billions of gr- dollars in grant money all to every university trying to figure out where this place came from. You know, trying to figure out the the cosmos and the, the beyond space and time uh, dimension that's projecting reality into existence. So this is like a major thing here that that's even the simplest Jew in the world is commanded to know there's a God. And are you guys expecting to get upstairs having fulfilled this like the the number one commandment of the top ten list? Like are you planning on walking up there, meaning uh, however you go into the next world? But are you planning on going in there with like you know, like, I don't know, going like this. <sighs> At least I knew there was a God. Like, like, what are y'all planning? Like, I know a lot of you do Shabbat. So, like, okay, you'll walk into the next world with Shabbat, you know, in your pockets. I'm sure some of you keep, some of you keep kosher. So you'll come in with that. Which are all wonderful commandments. But the actual commandment of knowing there's a God is it's the first of the Ten Commandments that's the basics that's that that's you know you don't even have to be Jewish to be commanded that one although our our rabbis are are lighter on Gentiles Gentiles can fulfill it through belief Gentiles are allowed to just believe in God and they fulfill the commandment but what are the rest of us going to do what are we going to do if you think you, as a Jew, you get to show up upstairs having believed in God, <laughs> I, I don't want to say it in such strong terms, but there's a chance you'd get no reward for for that commandment. Meaning, you know, it'd just be like it would be like a blank spot. And then the other question you get to see if I can go even scarier is is if you're keeping Shabbat and you're keeping kosher and you're keeping like all kinds of other commandments. But you never even knew there was a God. Do you get those commandments too? Or maybe you lose everything. Because what were you doing it for? Because your parents did it? Why are you lighting Hanukkah candles? Because your grandfather did it? Why are you keeping kosher? Because it's just what we do. Now, normally, it's that'd be cool because we are a tribe. And tribes do tribal things. And just like every Indian, you know, might... You know, they're and dance around a fire. I don't think they. If you asked, if you pulled them over and said, uh, "Tonto, please tell me why do you do this?" <laughs> he doesn't have to answer. He's part of a tribe, and our tribe does keep kosher, and our tribe does keep Shabbos, and our tribe wears tefillin, and our tribe lights Hanukkah. They are tribal things. So we are part of a tribe, but the, and so maybe you can get upstairs and answer, well, I'm part of a, tri- I was part of the tribe. Can you pour me two of those, two waters, please? So the, maybe you can answer that I'm part of a tribe, but 
How are you going to answer? How are you going to answer? I'm part of a tribe. When, when all the tribal things we do are only because there's a God who commanded those things. And if you didn't get that clear, so then what is what is all this about? What is this all about? Oh, I forgot I have my uh, life-saving juice here. I decided I'm on a cleanse for the next period of time after Purim. Oh, my gosh. Can I give these two, please? These are to film. They need to be checked. Rob Gill, just to get them to Rob Gill. I don't care when you get them to Rob Gill. Just get them to Rob Gill. Have him put my name and number in there. So can he, he'll put my... He has Okay, thanks. You don't have to do it this second. Anyway, I got my life-saving juice. Can I have one more cup? Just scared this life-saving juice is going to wind up all over my mustache. It always comes out different colors. This color... Today it's... Com- Today it's just the color of mud. Oh my gosh. Yum. Did you guys have Dead Sea before? What? <laughs> huh? <laughs> <laughs> Is that Dead Sea mud? Yeah. <laughs> it's not trying to do It's actually pretty good. Is that from a place in the show? Can I try this? I went there. Who's the Ellie? Who's the Ellie, yeah. You can carry it if it comes through my cup. You want it from the bottle? Yeah, whatever. You guys, I'm not eating today. Like, you're like, oh, this is my food for today. I just want to taste it. You want to. Yeah, that's all you get, bro. Now you're cut off. <laughs> it won't even slither out of the cup, that, that amount. <laughs> you need a spoon. Mmm. So I think it's Bray Priha Dhamma or something. I don't know. No, it's Shackle. It's Shackle. Okay, listen. What's your name, sir? What? Mikhail. My name is Nice to meet you. Mikhail. And what's your name, nice lady? Vivian. Vivian, and you are? Esther. Esther, where are you guys from? Columbia, Panama. Yeah, nice. Miami. Miami. Anyway, welcome. Thank you. Welcome. I didn't welcome you at the beginning, but uh, a lot of these guys I've seen around, except for this guy over here. What's, what's your name? Adam. What? Adam. Adam. Where are you from? Panama. Panama. Wow. We need a Spanish-speaking teacher. Yeah. <laughs> Soy de California. And you? From Miami. Miami is another Mexican area. Mexican. <laughs> <laughs> I got rear-ended by a drunk uh, Puerto Rican in Miami once. Yeah, wasn't pretty. Yeah. <laughs> Anyone else from a Spanish-speaking country here? No, no. 
Anyway, I grew up speaking Spanish, and you know why I'm here today? You know how I got here? Because I was raised in, obviously, in the lap of luxury in Los Angeles, you know, in the, with uh, the fancy house and the neighbors and the live-in servants and everyone. So the, how I got here today was because of uh, two Mexican housekeepers who were happier than my parents. So I started noticing as a kid that our housekeepers are happier. And not only that, but all our friends' housekeepers are happier. And I realized that whatever it is that my father's trying to impress upon me as like Western values, the American dream, is turning into a nightmare. And everyone's driving their Audi SUV to their shrink. While the housekeepers live 9,000 miles away from their family, you know, 5,000 miles away from their families, haven't seen any of them in half a year work their tail off to send the money back to Guatemala or Mexico or wherever. They, um, and, and they still have more well-being and more presence and more love and more care. I mean, I, I, they have more care for the children than, their own, than the parents did. You know, and, and like the real essential aspects of what a child needs as a kid. Being raised in, the, in that kind of a presence and that kind of a protective love that's, you know, they were, they, they weren't um, out to lunch. They were tuned in, and uh, and that was it. By the time I was eleven years old, it was over. You know, it's just just gonna find out what makes me happy. Now I'm here, <laughs> and these are what make me happy. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. But I was a, I was serious, a serious rebel growing up, and uh, and I was. What were you rebelling against? The, uh, capitalism. Oh. Yeah. There's always that. Yeah. <laughs> I was a serious rebel growing up. By the way, I'm all about private wealth. Private wealth is wonderful. I run my own company. It's international. Like I'm not against private wealth. However, um, a, a level of sharing that needs to take place in the world. Uh, sharing of that of that wealth, sharing of those funds, even my own company, which uh, just to be part, just to join a program that I'll run is you know it's, it runs a lot of money, and once and once in a while someone will come and they don't have any money. I just now I'm flying a guy in from Los Angeles. Who's that cool guy? The guitar player. We did a gig. What's Shabbos? What's Taylor. Taylor. I'm flying Taylor in. Oh no, he's covering his plane fare, and I'm covering the rest. Yeah. Just to get him in there. Taylor, that's amazing. Taylor rocks, man. So that's what I'm saying is like, is it, there's private wealth's great, but make sure that you're, you, all that all wealth is, is responsibility. That's it. Wealth doesn't mean a nicer car. doesn't mean necessarily another set of garages in your home. Wealth means responsibility. It's responsibility to the community. And and the in the all communities, meaning the community you live in, uh, however you can reach people at large, but uh, to make a difference, you know, we're here to make a difference. Because in the end, it's all going to be taken away from us. I mean, everything. This this is God's sense of humor. Is that your whole life? I don't care how much you build financially in your life. You're standing on a carpet, and God's job at the end of your life is to go like this. 
Because it doesn't matter what you'll build in your life, it will be taken, it's going to be taken away from you. Everything. But everything. Meaning, it's not just our stuff. I know most men are worried about losing their, their you know, wealth or whatever, like their house, their cars, whatever. Our families, everything's going to be taken out. What really got taken out was us. But that meant everything got taken away. And so, what we want to do whenever we have any kind of resources is to share them. And then that's eternity. The more you share of your resources, the more eternity you have. One of the great, uh, one of the great um, wealthy families of, uh, of um, Europe, his name was Rothschild. Rothschild. He, um, he asked his accountant, please, I want to know what I'm worth. And uh, please do a whole accounting and tell me what I'm worth. So the accountant went, disappeared for a couple hours, came back, and he said, you're worth such and such billion, whatever. He says, that was not my question. What I wanted to know was, can you please add up all of my tzedakah receipts, my charity receipts? Because that's actually the money in the next world. See, you can't use dollars in the next world. You can't use you know, shekels or pesos or, or pounds and your, your actual currency in the next world will be all the goodness of your life. Like every act of goodness, every act of goodness, every time you went beyond yourself will be your reward in the next world. And the funny thing is this whole world is only a blink of an eye. I mean, how long will you be here? I bless you to be here 120 years. But guess what? Even the 120 years, no time elapsed. Because in the in beyond this world where we go when we die, meaning the soul world, there's no space and time. So the space and time is only a creation. You get that? You're, no time will elapse. From the day you were born to the day you die, there will be zero time elapsed. Because time elapse is only based on the earth vis-a-vis the sun. It's a creation. But on the spiritual world... There will be zero time elapsed. So what a shame to get caught up in this world, to think this world was where it was at. By the way, this world's awesome. I'm, you're talking to a guy who's got, you know, I ride, I ride um, exotic mountain bikes. Okay, I like, I like jacuzzis. <laughs> I like to ski. I like mountain biking. I like. Uh, I have twelve, eleven speakers in my car stereo, mm-hmm. two amplifiers. Uh, I take my equipment very, Here. very seriously. I have about eight, nine surfboards, and um, and I also drink only craft beer. Mm-hmm. So listen, like enjoy, enjoy. I, th- I think that's another thing. You'll get upstairs, and if you didn't enjoy the world, God's going to be like, "What were you doing down there? Mm-hmm. What were you doing there? What, I, I give you taste buds, and you drink Budweiser." <laughs> you drink a Budweiser for if I gave you taste buds I gave you sight and you never saw the Alps uh, I gave you hearing and you never heard a you know a symphonic orchestra or a, or a, some really nice high fidelity speakers you think you think with a million bucks you could create a speaker system that would be as good as what God gave you to experience it what are they doing when they're building these hi-fi sound systems for like the uh, Omnimax and all that? You know, these like super expensive high fidelity sound systems. All they're trying to do is approach what God created inside our ear to receive. They're just trying to approach it. 
So I take it as my personal responsibility every time I get a new car is to make sure the stereo's as close as possible to what God put in my ears to receive. But back to knowing there's a God, how, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do this? And, and, and the fact that we do all our, all our tribal stuff as Jews, does that... Do we get rewarded for all the tribal stuff even though we didn't ever figure out that there's a God that commanded all that stuff? I mean, we need a good analogy. What would be a good analogy? I don't know a good analogy. I've been thinking maybe a worker who's doing like a hundred, a list of a hundred tasks only to find out, I don't know, you know a good analogy? To do all the stuff without knowing you're being commanded, there's an actual being that's commanding it. Mm-hmm. Why can't we just believe in it? Why does the Rambam make us have to know? Why can't we just believe? And I got another question for you. Ready for this? Is it even possible just to believe? Meaning, would you do everything if it was just belief? For example, anyone here in university age here, university going? Anyone going to university? Age or going? Anyone going? Okay, wrong crowd. <laughs> so. And who went to university? And who went to university? Okay. Now, let's say you believe in God, and you've been studying for finals, and you're absolutely exhausted, and all you're thinking about all week is, I'm going to finish studying, I'm going to go to the rabbi's house for Shabbos dinner, and then I'm going home and going to sleep. And you get home to go to sleep, and you realize you left all the lights on in your bedroom, and it's Shabbos. Now, if it's if you only have belief in God, what's going to happen with that light switch? For most people, it would just be God, forgive me, you know. But you got to understand, switch, go to bed. But if someone knows, if someone's like actually walking with absolute knowledge, like God's standing right in front of him. It's like God's standing right between him and the light switch, and saying like. Find sleep shades, go to a friend's house, go sleep in the living room, like, put a, you know, put a sock on your, over your eyes, like, but light switch is not an option. Light's not going off. There are so many commandments that take place where no one's looking, except for God. So if it's just about belief, like some kind of fuzzy belief, I can't imagine anyone can even keep Judaism. Is Judaism keepable if it's just my belief? And because because the 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 massive amount of details involved in every commandment, for you to be involved in those details and actually to dot your I's and cross your T's in all of Judaism, would only be because you know. I mean, there's things in the world that I'm not sure of, and I promise you, I'm not doing a very I'm not doing a great job there. But there's other things I know about. There's things I know about. And the things I know about, I'm very, very careful with. There are certain trails I go down on my mountain bike where I know the risks involved. And they're, they're more, you know, super steep, extreme. You know, sh- they're kind of like shoots you shoot down. And um, 
so my care is it's a totally I'm caring for different details because of that you know it's almost vertical you know 20 feet of almost vertical drop so my tires are on the ground but not much on the ground and they're and they're and it's just like that till the next uh, terrace but there's so many details that I know about before I'm going to be doing that but when when we don't even know and we don't know the consequence and we don't we're, we're all very loose but Judaism isn't asking for loose it's asking for like every nut and bolts tightened out tightened down like we're There are two types of knowledge. One type of knowledge is called absolute knowledge. And then there's another type of knowledge. What's the other type of knowledge called? What? Relative. Close. That's a good opposite of absolute, but in knowledge, it's a different word when it comes to knowledge. Anyone remember? Anyone do philosophy? What? Excellent. Deductive. Deductive knowledge. These are two types of knowledge. Absolute knowledge doesn't require you to deduce anything. For example, that this is a plastic cup is absolute. No. Please don't go there. (laughs) That this is a pair of shades, yeah? Absolute knowledge that these are sunglasses, yeah? For sure. I can promise you they're sunglasses. Just from looking through them. But that your mother's your mother. Absolute or deductive? No. It's deductive, isn't it? Unless you were in some fight with your mom and you're like, You're not my mom. She's like, Yes I am. Mm-hmm. And you take a you take a Q tip and you do a swab of her tongue. And the next time she speaks, you go. We'll see if you're my mom. (laughs) You go DNA your mom just to show her she can't possibly be your mom. If you did DNA your mom and it turned out to have your DNA, what would you say? Absolute or deductive? That's absolute. Whereas the woman we call mom is a deductive thing. Now, I'm not telling you not to call her mom because they're both called knowledge. Absolute knowledge and deductive knowledge it's fine i didn't want you to get nervous or anything okay which one other than if it's your mom or not it would be nicer if you would use another example you don't like my example nice. you got along so well with your mom i love my mom i asked if you got along with your mom i get along with my mom really yes that's amazing <laughs> i'm so happy for you um because you have the benefit of the Tao as a Jew also. You have to give the benefit of the Tao. So, I don't as Jews, like that we know who's Jewish? Meaning just to know you're Jewish? Mom. Yes, through the mom. With your mom. Yeah, isn't that amazing? Whoa, that's amazing. Judaism allows all of us to go f- as Jews because we're, our mom's our mom. But no proof that our mom's our mom. Pretty cool. Which means that you're a Jew is deductive knowledge. Think about it. We're all deducing that our moms are mom, and that means we're all deducing that we're Jewish. Yeah, isn't that interesting though? That I would never like. I'm an absolute Jew. 
I'm absolutely Jewish. And no, according to this, it's deductive. And then there's the famous question, what if you ever got a phone call from your mom saying, guess what? Mm-hmm. We just got papers. We're not Jewish. What would you do then? It does happen. What do you do? He said he'd eat a cheeseburger. Would you? I'm sure you would go eat a cheeseburger. I do a lot of, I do a lot of other things first. That's good right now. What would you do? Raise your hand if you'd convert to Judaism at this point of your life if you found out you weren't Jewish. Nobody? Oh, you would? Whoa, that's amazing. Would you do it immediately or have a, a year out? <laughs> so, I'll give you some other examples, though. Airplanes. I think everyone got here in an airplane, which is, there's, you risk your life. Anyone have absolute knowledge? Deductive knowledge. Anyone here ever made biz- money in a business deal or put down some investment money? Did you have absolute knowledge? You had deductive knowledge. <laughs> you had deductive knowledge. And yet you risk your money, you risk your life. We, everyone here had ever been in a car? You risked your life. Deductive knowledge. Anyone here going to get married? Please, God. Anyone here already married? You're going to know? Deductive knowledge. If you're a female, maybe you know. But if you're a man, what did we say the other day? That a man from the night he's engaged and he looks in his be- he looks at his ceiling after the party. He looks at the ceiling. And he says, "What did you just do? <laughs> you just ruined your life." <laughs> and that voice gets louder and louder and louder till the chupa. And then after the chupa, it gets quieter and quieter for the next fifty years. But it's still there. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's why they celebrate such a big anniversary on the 50th. Yeah, that's it. Then you're in. And that's why I always tell brides that when they get engaged during those months till the wedding, don't go near the your your husband. Don't go near the groom, because you 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 think he's all like really excited to have a Shabbos meal with you. But he's actually, what's going on in his mind is this was the worst mistake I've ever made in my life. And, and so every little thing that you did before that he thought was cute is now like making him crazy. Uh-huh. And like it's all proof of why he's supposed to drop out of this and like, you know, break it off. So if you do get engaged, girls, here are girls. When you get engaged, I bless you all to be engaged. When you get engaged, just like move to another continent. <laughs> till the day of the chuppah you know, just come back for the day of the chuppah but if you have to be in the same area just just stay away you know, what they do in the Hasidic world is they call the more liberal ones they call on Friday the, the groom calls you on Friday and says good Shabbos and you talk for like an hour but uh, that's it nothing more than that till the chuppah and then you have plenty of time to get to know each other afterwards now <laughs> so let's call this absolute knowledge here and this is all going to be deductive knowledge okay so this is all deductive it's absolute deductive and this would be obviously no no knowledge whatsoever you know this would be like 
I don't know, I don't want to mention other religions here, but, you know, just whatever of the funkiest of all the religions you've ever heard of, like, where you know absolutely nothing, there's nothing to do whatsoever, you have zero evidence for anything except crazy blind faith about things. But I, I generally don't like to mention other, other religions. And now, I've got a question for you. My question is, what do you think when God commands us to know there's a God, is he talking about absolute knowledge or deductive knowledge? Which one? Sounds absolute. Sounds absolute. Deductive. The only one who can have absolute knowledge of God is, well, it's kind of, uh, meaning anyone who dies could have absolute knowledge. But anyone, but it's kind of hard to interview someone who died. And the, so the only person could be a prophet. Meaning prophecy. Someone who has prophecy has absolute knowledge because he's getting a direct communication with God. It's very interesting that we had national prophecy before God gave us 55,000 laws to follow, which is the 613 breaks out to about 55,000 laws. Think about it. Like God knows what he's doing. Before he gives you 55,000 laws, he first gives a national prophecy. And then once you get the national prophecy, you're in. You know, it's like back to chuppah. It's like the love you have at your chuppah for your spouse. That kind of love is, is so... With that kind of love and that kind of commitment and clarity, that, you know, with 500 people, 300 people, 400 people witnessing the chuppah, you're married now. And because you're married now, you will accept upon yourself all that it takes to keep her happy and all it takes to keep him happy. Whereas a boyfriend and girlfriend, never. You would never take on all it takes. And that's why when people are in boyfriend-girlfriend relationships, they don't realize they're doing this, but unconsciously they withhold a lot of what it takes to keep them happy so that they don't put too much weight on the person so they don't get dumped. And they don't even know this. They're unconsciously withholding what it takes to maintain yourself. What it takes for the other to maintain you. And and the question is, why would anyone do that? Like, why would someone pretend they're being held when they're not being held? Why would someone pretend to be held when they're not being held? And the answer is, it just shows you how low the self-esteem is inside the person who would fool themselves into thinking they're being held. It's only a function of low self-esteem. All dating, all boyfriend, girlfriend, the whole entire world of it is all driven by low self-esteem. To pretend someone's holding you is not really holding you. And call, and call it love? You're going to use the, the incredible holiest word in the world, love? You're going to use that word? When you're not even being held yet. And that's why when you wear an insurance policy <laughs> on your ring finger, which, you know, or, or our wives wear the insurance policy on their ring finger, all of a sudden, everything it takes to hold you is being held. Because there's a commitment, there's a clarity. The whole world witnessed it. The rabbi, the witnesses, the, the crowd that came to be there at your wedding. And for, with that, you'll hold each other forever.
And so when there is an absolute knowledge like that, meaning this is my spouse for the rest of my life, you can now, you, there is now a possibility of all the details involved. So when God gave the Torah with thousands of halachas, many of which are expensive and many of which are inconvenient, not being able to drive to shul means I got to live near a shul. I don't want to live near a shul. Most cities in the world, the shul is in a place, the last place you want to live. No one wants to live there. But with absolute clarity, I'll live, yes, I'll live in the city next to the shul. Or I'll have an extra house. They call it a Shabbos house. I'll have a Shabbos house. Absolute knowledge. God can ask. Once you have Parsha's Yisra, which is the giving of the Torah, Sinai, once you have the revelation, now you can have Mishpatim. Now you can have laws. Now you can have all the details. Because God can give an ask, like the 613, which is really 55,000 laws. God can have that big ask, but only when you know. Only when you know. Absolutely. But we are not the generation of Sinai. And it is 3,328 years later. So, what are we stuck with? Deductive knowledge. And deductive knowledge is relative to every person. For example, someone who is a... A skateboarding, pot smoking, you know, mohawk, body pierced, barely literate punk. He has, he probably doesn't have a very high threshold of where he'll call it enough knowledge to do it, to meaning to start keeping Judaism and realize, meaning knowing there's a God and keeping Judaism. He probably wouldn't have a lot. But what about someone with like um, a couple physics PhDs or or maybe, uh, you know, you know, whatever, some other kind of big scholar with multiple PhDs. Do you think they're going, their threshold of evidence is here for God and Torah? What do you think? Pretty high? It's going to be up here? Thanks. It depends on the guy. Excellent. Because if he's actually got emotional intelligence as well as intellect intelligence, it'll be a little lower. But if his emotional intelligence is low, it'll probably be higher. It depends on his emotional intelligence. Because there's something called intuition. <laughs> Intuition's your ultimate compass in life. Intuition's an amazing compass. You have to temper with your brain. Meaning, I know a lot of people who believe in crazy stuff. Intuitively. Because, but they didn't use their brain to temper it. In Judaism, you always listen to your intuition, tempered by your brain. And when in doubt, you always go to your rabbi. You go to your rabbi. You understand? You live by your intuition, tempered by your brain. And if you're in doubt, you speak to your rabbi about what to do. And obviously, your rabbi's got to be an intuitive. Because a lot of Jewish scholars out there, well, let's call the Jewish scholars, those are rabbis. But a rebbe, the person who has that intuition for you, that's a rebbe. You get the difference? Rabbis have lots of knowledge. Encyclopedic knowledge of, of the world. But for someone to have the intuition to guide you, that's that's a rebbe. Yeah. There are a lot more rabbis than rebbes. Yeah. Now, um, interesting in the Hasidic world, the, many of those great rabbis are not so uh, knowledgeable in Torah compared to uh, other people in the community. 
for example, my community, my rabbi happens to be very knowledgeable, but he still will not make halachic, he won't make like big halachic decisions. That's another rabbi in the shul. So he would always refer us to him, which we don't even go to the rabbi now. We, we know if you have a serious halachic um, question, you go to the, him. But when you have a question about your life, you don't go to him, you go to the rabbi. Because the Rebbe has the intuition. He's got his finger on the pulse. So, different people are going to have a different level of of uh, what's called the threshold. That's the threshold. But guys, I'm, I'm going to do a little more strong muster. I apologize if I offend anybody here. Um, you have a very low threshold for all kinds of things. For example, I don't think any of you meant, checked if the FAA was not on strike the day you flew. You know, I don't think, I think all of us jump in our car having not serviced it three months, four months, six months, ten months, not doing any servicing and we'll still drive 70 miles per hour on a highway. Our thresholds are extremely low. I know some people are a little trigger happy with their money in investing and their thresholds were pretty low. I know plenty of people whose thresholds were low in choosing a spouse. The um, our, our thresholds much like the punk rock skateboarder. But here's the here's here's the final and most important point of this entire class is the reason why our threshold is so high when it comes to God and Torah. is because there's a fear factor. Whenever you introduce a fear factor in the quest for knowledge, I'm going to say it again, whenever you introduce a fear factor in a quest for knowledge, for evidence, for information, you get unintellectual. You suddenly get unintellectual. Nothing's enough. I mean, someone who's afraid of flying it doesn't matter how much you prove that there's a Federal Aviation Association. You don't have, it doesn't matter how many times you prove the pilots are the real deal. You can show him the gas gauge on the plane that it went up. It's full. Mm-hmm. He's not getting on the plane because there's not enough, no evidence will get him on that plane. The guy is really not going. And he'll cancel the important business meeting that he used to take a train for, but it was an emergency and they asked him to fly. He's just not going to come. When there's a fear factor. So I'm going to ask you, regarding God and Torah, we answered our first question, that when, how do you know there's a God? So the answer is, it's going to be what kind of knowledge? Absolute or deductive? Deductive. We have that answer. God's not expecting us to have absolute knowledge. That's prophecy. God's not expecting you to become a prophetess. However, when it comes to, when it comes to deductive knowledge, where you're gathering evidence, which is really what I meant to write here. I should have written evidence. Evidence. When you're gathering evidence, there's a major fear factor when it comes to God and Torah. Listen, I'll ask you a question. If you knew 100%, like I have five fingers on my hand, absolute knowledge that there's a God, absolute knowledge, is there anything you wouldn't do for God? Absolute, 100%, five-fingered clarity that there's a God. Is there anything you wouldn't do for God? 
Right. There's nothing. Therefore, what? Stay fuzzy. And <laughs> <laughs> she got it. I don't know if the rest of them got it, but you got it. Therefore, stay fuzzy. Got it? Stay fuzzy about God. Yeah, I believe in something up there. Because if I just believe in something up there, so no way I'm doing the details. There's a fear factor here. And what is the fear factor? You probably think the fear factor is changing. Changing your lifestyle. I mean, suddenly you got to do all this stuff. So that's probably the fear factor. And because there's a fear factor, there's never enough evidence, and I always stay fuzzy. Now, it is true that there is a fear factor of the change that will come from someone who's deduced that there really is a God and Torah is really real and true. Yes, you're right. There's a fear factor of lifestyle change. But there's an even bigger one. Who could tell me what the bigger one is? What? Self change. Self change, yeah. What's the bigger, what's the fear though? Fear of? I mean, if you won the lottery, your life would change all over the place. You'd love every minute of it. It's something else. Fear of the unknown? No. Fear you were wrong. What? Fear you were wrong. No. The biggest fear. These are all good fears. I'm saying the biggest. Alienation. What? Alienation. Yes. Go on. Keep going. What do you mean? The fear of everything around you crumbling based on your one singular belief. I understand, but what's people say it again? Leaving you. And you're now standing there with your infinite knowledge. This is gonna freak you guys out and I hate to say such a strong point here. But the number one thing that blocks your access to there being a God and to it being in Torah being real and true is not the information. It's not the evidence. That's not what's in the way. What's in the way is what will they say about me? It wasn't your class before no. What will they say about me? Is that insane? What blocks our access is what would they think? What would my mother think? What would my children think? What would my spouse think? What would my, what would my siblings say? And you'll notice the closer they are to you, the more you're worried about it. I Meaning, do you really care what some guy who happens to know you, where you're from? Germany. Germany? Yeah. What neighborhood? What city? Hamburg. I mean, do you really care what some guy who lives a few blocks from you in Hamburg thinks? No. But the closer it comes, the more you worry. And you know what? The harder the time they'll give you for changing. You know why? Why would they give you a hard time for changing? It's as if they suddenly became experts in Judaism. They don't know that, they don't know nothing about Judaism and they'll still give you a hard time. Why? Can you imagine arguing with someone about something you knew nothing about? Why would they argue with you about your Jewish moves? When they themselves don't even know anything. And the answer is because the only reason anyone knows who they are is because the person around them who knows who they are. Because he knows, because she knows who she is, meaning my sister. That helps me know who I am. We're all giving each other context in one giant fictional agreement based on the neighborhood you're from. So Florida has its fictional agreement and Panama has its fictional agreement, Colombia, LA, New York. These are fictional agreements. And who we are is based on the people closest to us. And when we suddenly take ourselves out because something was real and true, and then we try to somehow re... What's the right word for it, Sam? Re... re 
reimmerse, no, go back to in, <laughs> whatever, go back to them. They don't know who they are. And that's why they're, that's why they're having these stupid arguments about Judaism. Because they, they try having an argument about Judaism with someone who knows nothing about Judaism. The reason they're willing to have these stupid arguments about stuff they know nothing about is just because they're, they're in a major crisis of their own identity. They don't know who they are because once you change, they don't know who they are. And so what becomes at stake for our search for truth is not even the change it brings. Rather, it's what would they say? And now I'm going to say one, a very strong thing, and then we're done. The strong, if I didn't say enough strong things, I'm going to say one more strong thing, and then, and that strong thing is that, that I want to tell you something. The world's going to hell in a bucket right now, okay? Everyone's going down a river of absolute and total washout on so many way, so many levels. I'm not even, I don't want to get into that. You were the only chance to pick them up. You were the only chance of someone who was going to stand up for something real. And the fact that you gave up real to look good for people who are looking good for people who are looking good for people who are looking good for me, because that's all they're doing. You were their only chance to get out of a river of that's literally heading to Niagara Falls. You were the branch that was coming across with the integrity of living something that's true and eternal. And I don't care if you're their kid. They'll, they'll let you lead. They'll let you guide. I don't care if you're the younger brother. I'm six years younger than him. And my other brother too. And I, I couldn't sleep at night if it wasn't that my family would know about Judaism. And the truth is, he's the one who turned me on in this place in the first place. But then I kind of took to it strongly. <laughs> when I asked him, why didn't you tell me about it seven years earlier, he said, he says, I was afraid I'd lose you. See? Because <laughs> he did finally, he sent me seven years, he sent me seven years later, and I never came back. Just so we didn't kill our father with you dishing university. <laughs> so, anyway, we're almost done. That was the last, that was the last, and then the final point is, guess what character trait? We're going to end with this. What character trait does it take to stop worrying about what people think and start looking for and living the truth you find I'm going to ask that again what character trait of all the character traits nice, warm, friendly, patient what character trait of all the character traits does it take to be able to live truth first search for truth and then live it You know, search for it, I don't care how high you need to go Torah will meet any threshold. Torah will meet any threshold. I don't care who you are. Torah will meet your threshold. What is the character trait you need to develop? And it may be too late, by the way. Anyone want to say it? Humble integrity. You got it. Integrity. Because you know what the word integrity comes from? It's a Spanish word, integracia. Integration. Integration. What is the word integrity? Integration. I heard it. I integrated it. I know this now. I integrate that. Stealing's wrong. Integrated. I won't be stealing. You can follow me around with a video camera. There won't be stealing going on. Lush and horror is forbidden. Integrated. Touching people the opposite gender is forbidden. Integrated. Integrated. The, the, 
it all boils down to integrity. So you can either be another kid going down the river, or you can be what your family and friends look to for integrity. And you will be that beacon of integrity, that shining light tower of integrity for your families. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.